Hey there, my name's Lewis and this is Keiku Talk, a podcast about accessibility and community brought to you by Keiku Technologies. You're listening to episode three with Anne Fomukong Bodu. Check out the link in the description of this episode for a full transcription of this episode's audio. I hope you enjoy. Hey there, and welcome to the third episode of Keiku Talk. You know, as usual, my name's Lewis, and I'll be your host for the next half an hour. Now, uh, in our first two episodes, me and my guests have spoken quite a fair bit about community, social outreach, and accessibility. But today, I think I wanted to focus a little bit more on ourselves at Keiku. And I really couldn't think of a better person to sit down with than Keiku's very own managing director, principal electronic engineer, and co-founder, Anne Fomukong Bowden. How are you doing, Anne? I'm good, thank you. How are you today? I'm great. I'm fine. I'm, I'm excited to, to do this. With you. I thought this should have been a, a sort of first episode almost, but I think it's nice to kind of give some context to what I've been talking about in the last couple of episodes with yourself. Cool. I'm happy to be involved. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, I think, I mean, you know, we, we've we've known each other for like, uh, you know, quite, quite, quite a few months now as I've been working here. And I suppose just a very broad start here, I just want to ask you about yeah, how did Keiku start, you know, from, from the person who co-founded it, from someone who's so involved in the operations every single day? I'd like to know kind of wh- where did the idea for the Keiku come from? You know, has it always been there? Was it more of a recent development? But um, in your own words, how did Keiku sort of begin? Wow. OK, so the idea for Keiku, um, I think it started as far back as 2015. Um, myself and my husband, Mark, who is also other co-founder we are both electronic engineers and um, we're both at the time designing audio electronics so anything that you can make music with make a sound with um, and at the same time we were doing a lot of um, kind of volunteer work within the community uh, mainly with uh, creative arts groups and we started to witness a lot of disabled artists essentially trying to use um, the kind of um, products and technologies that we were designing as part of our day-to-day job, um, but failing, and mainly because of the state-of-the-art um, features that we were putting into these products. So um, things we take for granted, such as a, a touch screen, um, such as an embedded menu, um, that was actually making it more difficult for um, disabled artists to use those products. And they wanted to use those products. That was the main thing. They weren't looking for um, bespoke assistive technologies. They wanted to use the same mainstream products that everyone else within their industry um, was using. So we thought, well, in, in all honesty, if those accessible features are designed into products at the start, then it's not like you can just, it's not a case of having an add-on at the end to make it um, accessible. It's accessibility built in inherently to the product. Therefore, you open it up to a wider audience and to everyone who wants to use it. So with that in mind, that's where the kind of the starting point for for Keiku um, existed. That's really interesting. I didn't realise that we that you started in uh, with that kind of idea of music. So I know we, we've spoken a lot about how you've always kind of had an interest in music and designing accessible uh, musical equipment and musical instruments. I didn't realise that was kind of like the origin point of KQ until now. Yeah, well, I mean, music is um, 
a massive hobby for myself. So um, I play several instruments. Um, I sing. Um, like I said, I've both been involved in um, in music groups, whether playing or singing within a band or a community choir. Um, so for me, um, and to be honest, I got into engineering through music. So one of the first things I ever um, designed, and that, this is whilst I was actually still at college, um, I wanted a way that I could um, hook in my electronic, my electrical guitar to my, this is going to show my age, my cassette player, <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, be able to listen to the two simultaneously um, through my headphones. So it was a, a very, very crude um, mixing device. So that was my first electronic um, project, and it was all as a way that I could play my music quietly without disturbing my mum. So, <laughs> <laughs> Do you so think... yeah, so, so sorry, that's, you the origins. No, that is, that's the origins of Keiku. So yeah, it came out of my love of music, really. <laughs> I had no idea of that. I can't believe I didn't know that. Do you think, that, um, <laughs> so at Keiku, obviously, I mean, I've spoken about it in the podcast, and, and you know, you know more than anyone that we're so involved in several sort of arts workshops and music workshops. And we've always kind of had a focus on accessibility and creativity. And we work with a lot of artists in the area uh, to do that with people. Do you think that like our, our, our heavy amount of involvement in those workshops and those ideas and that sort of creative side, um, do you think that kind of comes from your love of music? Do you think that like getting involved in the arts uh, with this kind of angle on accessibility is always ever since you started with the music it's kind of been something you wanted to pursue oh most definitely um I mean yes I love music but I also love the creative arts and I think anyone that knows me that knows that I've got quite an eclectic taste of <laughs> or eclectic range of hobbies so um yeah I've, I've always loved making things so whether it's um making a piece of art or making jewelry or um, making a piece of electronics that makes a sound that we can use within the workshop. Um, yeah, I'm, I suppose I'm quite a hands-on practical person who likes to explore the different creative arts and uh, creative mediums. So, um, yeah, and, and that as an extension has been, um, has driven the work, especially the uh, community engagement work that we do with Keiku. So I was wondering if, um, we're, you know, we're talking a lot about the early days here. What were those first sort of weeks with KQ like? You know, how was it kind of like deciding we're going to start a social enterprise, we're going to start an accessible engineering company? How What was it like kind of finding funding, finding an office space, finding kind of uh, opportunities in which to network? Did that kind of, did you kind of springboard off your previous engineering work or did you kind of have to start fresh? Ooh, in some ways we started afresh. So we always knew that we wanted to be a, a social enterprise, that we wanted to be a, a business um, as a, a force for good. So we first got in contact with the School for Social Entrepreneurs and we, um, we enrolled in their um, startup um, programme. And that was great because that gave us um, a whole background into a, how to create a business, all the different types of businesses and incorporation 
um, incorporation types um, that we could be as a social enterprise. Um, all the all, all the kind of business management and corporate governance side of things. So that was a nice grounding in regards to that side of things. And then obviously we had the engineering um, experience. Um, we've been very fortunate to be able to work within um, companies where we've worked on concept designs and seen them go all the way through to um, actual manufacturing and actually worked on every stage of that um, process, start right to finish, including marketing and commercialization. So we've got that experience and the project management that goes into that. And then I think with the community work we were already involved within, it was just a case of talking to people. Um, so we've always, anything that we've designed, whether that's a product or a service or a workshop, we've always spoken to that, the end user, the, the people who will actually be participating yeah. um, so that we know that whatever we design is, is going to be fit for purpose. So that conversation is an ongoing thing as well. It never stops. Um, it's, it's iterative, I suppose, because every time, say, we make a change to a product or a service, you have to keep having that conversation with the end users just to make sure that that change is actually a positive change and we've not gone um, two steps backwards. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's been, um, it's, there are various things that come together, but I think because of our, um, our experiences, um, the new knowledge that we've learned through um, various training courses that we've been on, and like I say, that, constant conversation with our community um it's 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 made things a lot easier in terms of progressing it's it's not yeah. been a quick thing um we've been progressing slowly at this like i say we started in 2015 um so it's, it's not something that happens overnight but as long as we keep moving slowly in the right direction then we know that that's, we'll reach our objectives yeah, I mean, I think that conversation with the end user is something that's really important, especially when you're dealing with accessibility, you know, because it's never quite a one size fits all thing. It's always about like compiling the thoughts and opinions of a number of individuals. And it's almost trying to find like an average of like how we need to think like net most amount of people we can help with these features, with this product, with this technology. And I think that's something that's kind of missing a lot of uh, accessible uh, settings and features and just even like baseline accessible technology it seems to be catered to like this kind of like ideal in the head of the designer disabled person but it doesn't really take into consideration the certain nuances of that of those uh disabilities and those uh, conditions yeah that's true i mean um i recall um one product we were um actually we're still designing still going through the r d process um and it was or it is a way to um enable blind musicians to participate within a mainstream um, music group such as an orchestra and so we we um, we had a group of um, blind musicians who tested out one of our earlier prototypes and I suppose we had 
a preconception of um, kind of what they'd want and how this um, product would actually work with them. And it's regarding haptic feedback, so vibration patterns um, yeah. that will portray um, a certain message. And the solution that we put in front of them, we had five musicians, um, all who play um, different instruments and the feedback we got from them, five different solutions, they all wanted something ever so slightly different because for their particular need, it's it just needed to be something that could be a bit more bespoke for them. So yeah. as an engineer, then you've got to come up with an, uh, not really a compromise, but a way that you can fulfill all of those requirements, but within one product. And I mean, that's, that's the challenge of, of any engineer, I think, but <laughs> it's, it's being aware that yeah. you know, not one solution will fit all. Therefore you need to yeah. have that, um, that flexibility within a solution. I think that, like, I mean, you know, getting back to what I said about, like, some people, they seem to still not not really necessarily understand the, the purpose of accessible features and stuff. I think that we see, like, so many, I guess what I want to ask you is, like, why do you think some companies and some uh, engineers, why do you think that kind of, like, those accessibility needs sort of slip through the cracks for them? Why do you think they kind of make these mistakes or they just flat out don't consider it? Do you think it's something that's, like, do you think it's conscious? Do you think it's a matter of time and funding? Or do you think it's just a matter of, I mean, not, not, to, not to use too aggressive a word here, but do you think it's just sort of a disregard? Ooh, um, I mean, there are several reasons. Um, like you say, one is just a general disregard, yeah. um, not seeing um, the disabled as part of their, um, their consumer group. Um, mm. There's that side sometimes the features are seen as being expensive however i mean looking at um smartphones nowadays looking at um laptops and tablets watches um all these actually have some very very some great accessibility features already built in and in some cases it's just the software that needs to open um those yeah. features out that in terms of hardware that possibility has always been there and we're seeing more and more that actually um these features are actually being opened up just by software components being added so yes there's, there's additional um time resource put into writing that software but you could argue that actually if you thought about it from the start maybe then um that time resource could have been better managed and yeah. the cost of that wouldn't be as, as high say so it's i think people are now realizing that if you design something that is um inclusive and even if it's beneficial for you, you, if you, even if you add additional features that are beneficial for, um, say, a, a smaller group of your um, of your market um, place, actually, you'll find those features are beneficial for everyone within that marketplace, um, and therefore, you actually open up your product to 
a greater market. There's more, um, there's added value to your to your product just yeah. by including um, what you saw as a kind of a minority consumer group actually just brings a lot more benefit to your wider market. Yeah, definitely. I, th- I think it's almost like a, a side effect of uh, uh, the disabled people and disabled customers almost being seen as like, this outside demographic where it's just like okay well maybe we can't appeal to them but we can appeal to everyone else it's almost like yeah i think i think it is kind of a slight disregard and i think when you're weighing up when these people are weighing up do we add it do we not it's kind of unfortunate that in the past it's always been well we won't but i think it's inspiring nowadays because i see i mean you know i I, i'm not like i'm not necessarily the the most uh tech savvy person but you know like everyone i have little gadgets and little things and I, I'm quite taken aback now, especially working with KQ and I'm a little bit more conscious of these things, how baked in accessibility features are from the very start. You know, it, it, this is like when you boot up a new computer or a new phone, there there are like screen readers enabled. There are, you know, they present them in different languages. There, there seems to be this like care and, you know, gosh, I mean, even like, you know, a hobby of mine, I play a lot of games and, and then they, from the very start, like I said, there are screen readers, there are, there's haptic feedback. There is um, translators for on-screen actions. If you're deaf, they have like sound indicators. It's a lot of technology now and a lot of software seems to kind of be shipping with this baked in from the start. If you need it, it's there. It's not like something you need to find. It's nothing you need to download. We we have it here. And I think that's quite an inspiring thing to see. Mm, It is. And I mean, even if you're not looking at it from, say, a a disability um, point of view, everyone has access requirements it's it's not just the disabled um we've got um people with push chairs um children um you know you need the access requirements just to make their lives easier going from a to b yeah um you've got individuals who um i love this there's a there's a phrase that i heard recently called the wonky market so yes i remember talking to you about the, 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 <laughs> is, is it wonky or wobbly um We'll go with wobbly. I think probably sounds better. Yeah, I, I think it's wobbly, but yeah, I remember talking. Yeah. Again, I think it's, I think it's sweet. I think it's this like wider consideration of what accessibility is. I think when people hear like accessibility for disabled people, they they automatically think like uh, they think braille, they think wheelchair ramps, which of course are fundamental and important. But it just it it, it extends to so many more people than I think people initially. You know, when they hear disabled accessibility, they have this kind of idea in their head, and it's just such a it's so much broader it's such a wider umbrella than I think they realize yeah it, it really is and when you actually start asking just the general public about their um their needs when they want to say travel from a to b um or um access a service and you start asking about you know how what they would like to see just to make that process easier for them you then start to appreciate that actually everyone requires something just to make their lives easier. And if one person requires something, chances are there are going to be thousands of people, hundreds of yeah, thousands of people who actually have that same requirement. So um, no, it's, it's about just thinking in broader terms of, of access. Like it's not just the disabled as we traditionally think of the disabled it's actually for everyone so in that way it becomes about being inclusive so um taking everyone's 
kind of trying to see everyone's point of view and, and their perspective and doing the best you can to to provide a service which will help as many people as possible. Yeah, I mean, I mean, going back to what you said about accessibility, uh, something that I've spoken about on this podcast now in, in the last two episodes is that something that we care about because also while we are you know very heavily and fundamentally an accessible technology engineering company it's something that we you know it's something we do and have done constantly it's something that you as you said have a real passion and interest in but i think accessibility kind of it extends beyond uh physical technology and pieces of engineering it's also about opportunity it's also about uh the chances for people from certain backgrounds or maybe certain demographics to to have the opportunity to partake in certain uh, activities and certain passions and certain hobbies, and I think that just goes hand in hand with you know, for example, as you were saying, like the accessible orchestra project you were involved in, which is um, because I think when people see the work of KQ and they see the care they have for disabled people and the this kind of strides that we're taking in accessibility, it. it it really does go to show that like when we do work as a social outreach and as a community enterprise that like this care is very tangible it's very real it's very uh, potent and um i've always one thing i've always liked about cake not to like obviously you know i work here now it's not like i'm being <laughs> told to say this but um i think it's something that was really uh, impressive to me and, and the accessible orchestra project in particular and that's actually the reason i interviewed it was the reason i, I made the choice to kind of write up that cover letter and, and seek out the opportunity because I just thought it was it showed this really unique care not just for the physical needs of people but also just this broad empathetic sort of uh, desire to provide opportunities to people. Yeah cool well I didn't know that about <laughs> the reason that you um you applied to us but yeah I'm, I'm glad to hear that um I mean one thing that we've always been um very aware of is the provision of opportunities for um, for people just to participate, to try different things, to um, to show off what they're actually capable of. Because I mean, it shouldn't be an issue that I'm a black female <laughs> engineer, but um, yeah. even even now, whilst we're still striving for um, equality within um, certain industries. I know that people are still surprised to to learn that I am an electronic engineer, and I, I often wonder um, about the opportunities that other people are afforded or not afforded because of um, preconceptions of their capabilities. So it's one of those things where I don't want to. Um, ever underestimate someone because no. of um, a preconception that maybe they have um, a learning difficulty, but that doesn't stop them from actually learning. It just means that you need to find a different method to um, portray that idea to them. It's, yeah. It's just, yeah. It's, it's, it's not that they can't learn. It's just that it's a different method to maybe the mainstream way of education. So it's affording everyone the opportunity to to try things out to to work out what they are actually capable of doing and and helping them as well um, so yeah that's that's one thing that at KQ we are very passionate about doing and 
we we try and find um, partners um, within, or not even within our industry, but other other organisations who have that same um, value of inclusive, inclusiveness and um, and allowing other people to, I suppose, explore their own potential. Yeah, I think that when, when you kind of work in accessibility and you work in uh, the, those fields of uh, community, uh, so sorry, community outreach and social enterprising, it's it's a matter of you have to see every kind of issue. I mean, like you said, you said this earlier in, in our conversation that engineering has always been about like, how do we make this work for everyone? But when you bring accessibility into the fold and you're thinking more about those needs and those uh, nuances to a project, it, it it becomes much more intricate and it becomes a lot more in depth. But I think that you just, you go into these things with a sense of how can we help people do everything rather than what can they not do? You, you know, I think that's a, I guess that's like a fundamental sort of pillar of working accessibility, but it's something that I just see in Keiko, it kind of bleeds into everything we do. Even like you said, even if just not losing these preconceptions and allowing people the opportunity to partake in everything and get, you know give them the benefit of the doubt of what they want to do and uh, how effectively they can do it, no matter whether it's it's a it's a disability, it's an accessibility need, or if it's just a matter of their background, you know. But um, I mean, going back to the Starbucks conversation, like the origin of KQ, uh, you started in 2015. I knew you KQ had been around for some years now. I didn't quite realise it was you know, you know coming up to seven years. But um, I, I want to know because KQ started with you and and your husband Mark as the co-founders and kind of sole uh, employees of it. And you brought myself and uh, our full stack developer O'Neill on at the same time uh, last year. I'm wondering what was it like starting that, just being a little two-person business. How how did that um how, how did that factor into the already I imagine probably quite difficult startup when you when you start a company like this? Oh, um, a lot of multitasking, um, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of kind of um, divide and conquer in terms of the workload. Um, but I, I think because we're both engineers and like I say we've 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 been lucky to have worked um in companies where we actually get involved in every single um part of um the process of creating something um yeah. bring it to market there was a the, the lot of project management expertise that we already had kind of inbuilt um so we made a plan um I suppose you'd call it a business plan, but yes, we made a plan and we knew that things were not going to happen overnight. So we just, we just planned, um, I suppose we, we planned our journey. We knew it was going to be a slow burner with just the two of us uh, working on this project. We, we knew our capabilities. We knew, um, I suppose, how long things would actually take. Um, but we also realised as from day one that we needed to have a good network of people around us so whether that's other freelance engineers um some of who we paid for their time some of which some of whom um actually volunteered their time um to help us um whether that's community organizations who um helped with um some of the r&d ideas so people could go and talk to and bounce ideas off so we always knew that from day one, we'd need a very, very good 
group of people around us um, and a good network around us that we could um, call on um, to help us progress through through our journey. And, and so, yes, start off with, there's only two of us. We have external people who are helping as well. Um, so, I mean, a lot of this is, as well is um, our focus on sustainability. Yes. So we've, we've always known that we wanted to build an organization that would last and that would also make a lasting impact. And in engineering, engineering is an expensive business. We know that. So we knew that whatever we did, we would have to be, um, I suppose, frugal and measured. <laughs> so we'll Two always move. Words when starting yes. <laughs> <laughs> so always with the key aim of progression and moving forwards, but we can't just go out there and we don't, well, we don't have hundreds of thousands of pounds to just spend on R&D. So we've had to do it in a, a gradual and, and, and measured way while still trying to have this um, community engagement side as, as well to, to, to make that the impact. So yeah, so it's, it's we're seven years in and we are still moving forward and we're still um, progressing and things are um, starting to to come together now, and and well enough that we can we can take on um, two additional full time <laughs> members of staff. So <laughs> things are obviously going in the right direction. I'm really glad to hear it. I think that to kind of hear in your own words the kind of story of Keiku, the inspirations, the sort of origins of it, and kind of. The, the slow, like you said, the slow road to a point where things are starting to come together. The snowball is rolling down the hill a little faster now. It's something I think the work that you and Mark have done in, in the years before before I ever even interviewed, of course. I think it's uh, I think it's really inspiring. I think it speaks to a real passion for uh, accessibility and a real care for people from all walks of life and in all uh, states of being. And I, I think that for two people who have accomplished uh, so much in such a relatively short amount of time it's something that uh, I, again I keep saying this word it's very inspiring and I think being a part of KQ now is something that I'm, I'm very very proud of cool thank you <laughs> okay but um, yeah I mean we're kind of hitting the time now so I think we should maybe wrap this up a little bit because but I, I, I really enjoy talking to you I think these are some I mean, we talk quite often, we talk every week, but uh, kind of getting to hear a little bit more about the origin of KQ has been really interesting. Uh, I think I've learned some very cool things about you and Mark uh, in this conversation. Cool. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, that, that's going to bring us to the end of, of episode three of KQ Talk with Anne Fulmer Kong Bowden. Um, I've had a really interesting time talking to her about KQ, and I hope you have listening. So, um, you know, g- goodbye from myself, Lewis at KQ, and from Anne. Yep, goodbye. Thank you for listening. <laughs>